Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Will here at Schedule Fly, and I feel very lucky that I had a chance to interview Jono Morisano down at the Gray in Savannah, Georgia. I mean, this place is awesome. It hasn't even been open for five years, uh, but already it has won Eater's Restaurant of the Year a couple years ago. Um, last year it was named as one of Time Magazine's 100 Greatest Places on Earth. Uh, Jono's business partner and chef, Mashama Bailey, Last couple of years, she was nominated as Best Chef in the Southeast, and she won it this year uh, for the James Beard Foundation. Best Chef in the Southeast for 2019. Um, so this place is amazing. And we had a very fun and wide-ranging conversation. I just came away so thoroughly impressed with John's work ethic, his passion for his business, his respect and care for his team, uh, the amazing relationship that he's built with uh, Mashama, his partner, business partner, uh, the devotion he has to making the gray an institution uh, for the people of Savannah for many years to come. So there's just so much to learn from John. I mean, he did not have hospitality experience coming into this business, and uh, he's quickly helped uh, make his restaurant a nationally recognized uh, restaurant, and it is an amazing uh, interview. So I enjoyed the opportunity, and I hope you enjoy listening. Have a good one. Hey, everybody. It's Will with Schedule Fly, and very, very excited today to have Jono Morsano on the phone. Um, he's in Savannah. He is a partner at The Gray and The Gray Market. And uh, I, I, don't want, I don't even know where to start with all the awards uh, he and his partner, Mashama, have won. But, I mean, just a couple of them. Um, y'all were uh, Eater's Restaurant of the Year in 2017. Uh, one of Time's Greatest Places uh, to Eat in the World in 2018. Um Mashama, Mashama Bailey, your partner, just won 2018 Best Chef uh, in the Southeast. 2019, yeah. 20, I yeah. mean, 2019. I uh, just came in yeah. with that. Yeah. Um, so, and you all have been in business, what, five years now? Four and a half. Four and a half. Four and a half years of uh, doing this together, yeah. Quite quite an accomplishment, uh, Jono. Um, and, I mean, I've heard, you know, I'm from Charlotte, and I've got, you know, I haven't been down to the gray yet, but I've heard lots of great things from folks that have, and, so you've really established an, an amazing brand and an amazing team there. Um, uh, just, I've read a little bit. I know your your background was in uh, startup media companies, and you traveled a lot and got into food and wine. But how, how did that all lead to starting a restaurant? Insanity. <laughs> um, I mean, do you have service? No, I mean, had you worked in restaurants when you were no, younger? It's like I've like I've worked almost every job um, possible. You know from my first paper route when I was 11 years old. And since then I've like, I guess I, the only, the closest thing I did is I worked at a Carvel ice cream store for like three years when I was in high school. So yeah, I was doing soft serve. <laughs> That's the closest I've come to the service business. I hear you. I hear um, you. you mean, so you had the paper route with that. That was an entrepreneurial indicator right there a little bit, I guess, but yeah, I mean, I just have always worked and I, you know, that's just who I am. And I come from that kind of family. Like I'm, you know, it's a very blue collar, background my dad was a fireman all my brothers were cops and firemen before they went on and got advanced degrees and i was the first one of four kids or five kids to go right from um high school into college and you know graduate and become an accountant and um and that's how i sort of started in the business world and you know through like sort of a series of events um, while I was in college, while I was working my way through college, I ended up in a film company, and that's how I ended up in the media business. Um, so I really had my first job in media while I was still going to college. And then, you know, became an entrepreneur, like had some early successes, and 
became an entrepreneur and worked for myself for a long time with a business partner in New York City and we did a lot of business in sort of New York and Los Angeles and um, spent some time in Paris and London over the last 25 years. And so like I just had always been around good food. Yeah. And you know, I grew up in an Italian family and so food is just like it's sort of the the focal point of life. And, you know, between that and always traveling and my wife and I just having sort of a New York City lifestyle where we ate out every night, I just was really connected to restaurants. Like, you know, some people are like gym rats. They always hang around the gym. Like yep. I'm like a restaurant rat. You know, I just love restaurants. I love I love the experience. I love eating out. It's my favorite thing to do. My favorite, favorite thing to do was kind of eat by myself where you're just connecting with what you're eating and drinking. And, um, and so with that kind of as my background, uh, my wife and I bought this home in Savannah about eight years ago and I was splitting up with the aforementioned business partner after like a long time together. And I just like the idea of starting over in New York city after it took like four or five years to unwind our business, which is how long it took. I just like, I couldn't, I couldn't bear the thought of it at 45 years old of like, oh, I'm going to start another company and I'm going to like, you know, sort of be in the New York rat race, um, you know, media and art, which are the only things I kind of knew about at that point. And so we had this home in Savannah and I said to my wife, you know, I said, I'm going to do this. Like I'm going to buy some real estate and maybe like, you know, I'll just sort of start planning for our retirement by like diversifying our portfolio, so to speak. And, and get some real estate in there. And I bought this old abandoned Greyhound bus terminal with the idea of rehabbing it. And as soon as I closed on the deal, I was like, you know what, this would be a really awesome restaurant. And I went home and told my wife, I'm like, I'm gonna build a restaurant, 109 MLK. Um, and she's like, you've lost your fucking mind. That's crazy. <laughs> I bet she was. <laughs> yeah, no, because I had done a lot of crazy shit in my career. And she was just like, that. that's when you've really gone crazy now. Um, but I swear to you, um, I basically started calling restaurant designers the next day, you know, and we were up and running. Like I engaged a team like within 30 days, maybe of closing on the, on the building and we just started at it. So, and that was, uh, six, six and a half years ago. Yeah. Cause the construction of the restaurant took two years. Well, the, um, yeah, I mean, you guys, it was like a, it was an old Greyhound bus depot. Is that right? Exactly. Yep. Uh, so that's been there for what, like close to a hundred years. It was built in 38. It built was in built 38. in 38 and it operated until 64. Okay. So you didn't, even, you didn't even buy it to build. Okay. So you bought it for real. That's fascinating, man. And you know, what's interesting yeah. is like, <clears throat> I hear you. Uh, I, I actually go to the gym a lot and I love being, I mean, I literally love it. I love everything about it. I can't imagine. Me too. I'm a gym rat as yeah, well. Yeah. I mean like, it's like if I don't go to the gym like a day or two, I just, kind of freak out but yeah but then the idea of owning a gym and operating a gym ah i don't know would that ruin you know the thing that i love so did that ever cross your mind because it was such a yeah it did actually um i I, and you know what i think it did after i had already decided to do it yeah and i think what you realize like i was in the music business for a period of time um where we owned a company that was like we had a record label as part of some of the things we were doing back in the day and we were also filming a lot of television with musical artists we were going to steal with pbs um, for a while and what i discovered when i started being in the business of music versus a guy who's really passionate about listening to music 
is that the music business is really, really a sucky business. Hmm. And to see the dark side of it, like to do deals with people who, you know, you grew up listening to, you know, like I was a 19, you know, 70s album rock guy, you know, so like we did deals with some of those bands and you find out like they're kind of shitty people. Like you don't want to, like you don't want to know that. Right. And so I like got out of the music business as soon as I could because I didn't want it to spoil sort of my view on, you know, these guys that I grew up, you know, sort of idolizing and listening to. And I thought about that when I got in the restaurant business. Like, will you ever be able to see a restaurant the same way again? Because here's what I knew. I knew I knew that Shama and I wanted to be really good at this, right? And we strive every day to be really good at it, right? And some days you're good at it and other days not so good. But I did know that once I did it, I would never be able to walk into a restaurant and see a restaurant sort of naively anymore. Hmm. And, um, and that naivete that I had is part of the reason I was able to do this sort of like with just blue sky in front of me. And now you're in a restaurant and like, you you know, you know exactly what's going on. You know, if the kitchen's weeded, you know, you know, if the door is doing what they're supposed to be doing. And you, you know, you, you think about all the steps that go into getting food to you at the appropriate temperature and quality, as opposed to like this magic happens where you don't see it and it just shows up. And so that has been changing for me. And Misham and I, when we eat together, it's like it's just a constant critique. You can't help but critique every single thing that you put in your mouth. So, Well, how did you meet Mishama? Um, Mishama was the sous chef at a restaurant in New York City called Prune. Um, and I was a huge fan of Gabrielle Hamilton's, who was the chef owner of Prune. Um, because it was kind of like situated between my office and my apartment for a good part of my career. And it was in my rotation early on when she kind of opened up and then it fell off of my rotation. Cause you move in New York city, like your life in New York city is like anywhere else. Like it's, you, you live in your own neighborhood, you know, everything that's more than three or four blocks from your apartment is like foreign territory to you. Yeah. And so when I moved, um, prune fell off the radar, but when I was building the gray, I started to read books by restaurateurs and chefs because I didn't know any, I literally didn't know anything about running a restaurant. Mm. And so I read all these books and one of the books I picked up was blood bones and butter, um, which is Gabrielle Hamilton's memoir. And I was listening to it on tape as I was driving from New York to, um, support from Savannah to New York. And I'm like, Oh, this is the lady who owns Prune. And then I was like, then I just developed a giant crush on her. Right. Mm. Because I was like, the way she ran her restaurant and the way she talked about food and she reads her own audiobook, right? So you have this really intimate experience with this person who's reading to you basically as you're driving in the car. And I was like, I have to meet this woman. Like everything she's saying about food and restaurants is exactly sort of the ethos that I want the gray. I don't think we had a name for it back then, but that I want the gray to live by. And so I stalked um, Gabrielle Hamilton via email and letters and things like that until she agreed to take a meeting with me. Um, and I told her, you know, what I was doing down in the South and that I wanted, you know, I wanted her sort of guidance on finding a chef because she ran this really, I kind of wanted to work with a woman um, because I just find women to be more collaborative um, as a general rule. Yep. Um, and Gabrielle ran this really sort of female empowered and diverse an inclusive kitchen and 
I just asked her, like, you know, help me. And she's like, all right, my sous chef kind of is maxed out here. And I think I want to introduce you, but I'm a little concerned that you're completely batshit crazy. So I want to think about that a little bit. <laughs> and she waited like a month or so or a few weeks. And she introduced me to Mishama via an email like early on a Sunday morning. And that was kind of like as soon as Mishama and I met, I mean, for me, it was instantaneous. Like, I'm like, I know I want to work with you. I know I want to be in business with you. I want you to, you know, I hope you'll come down here and be my business partner. So that was it. So it took like six months of sort of like this professional courtship and, you know, we ended up doing a deal. Well, I love the fact that you, uh, you said you kind of, you know, you said stalked her. I mean, but you were just persistently, you knew you wanted to meet this lady and, and, and really went after it and kind of kept going. And that's just, again, that's the mentality. I think that sometimes separates, um, it's, it's one of the mentalities I think a lot of successful business owners have to have is just being knowing what they want and being relentless about it and not giving up, which yeah. is really cool. Yeah, and that led to that partnership. Yeah. So, yeah. um, yeah. why, but by the way, why did you, why did you go to Savannah in the first place? I kind of figured you'd have gone there to start like, a restaurant, yeah, was, but yeah, no, no, we, um, we, we were lived here for, or we had a home here for a few years before I started to buy real estate and the gray got conceived. And we just like, literally, we did a tour of the South. Like we took a two week vacation and we were supposed to go to Italy. And, um, and I don't know if you remember that volcano in Iceland was erupting constantly in like 2010 and they were shutting down all the European plane traffic. Yep. This, this volcano was, and so we had to call an audible on our holiday plans and so we instead of going to italy we decided to do like a two-week driving tour of the south with our bicycles we were doing a lot of road biking at the time and so we put our road bikes on the roof my wife and i and we um drove all around the south and we'd stop in a city and we'd do like 50 miles on the bike and then we'd go eat and drink and you know get up the next morning drive somewhere else and do it all over again and so savannah just made this really lasting impression on us and we came back a year later and like as in sort of as like a long-term investment strategy, we we're like, Hey, let's buy a house down in the South. This way, when we think about like sort of, you know, retiring, you know, we've got a place outside of New York city that, you know, is a little different pace and it's not completely snowing all winter time. And so we bought this home down in Savannah almost on a whim. And it was originally going to be like a weekend place um, or like a once a month, you know, go down to Savannah and spend, you know, a weekend or you know you know some time and because i was breaking up with my business partner i just was like you know what now that we have this home in savannah i'll start to look for opportunity down here so it was all kind of like just serendipity and carol and i never had kids so like we're pretty free and easy yeah um and we you know like we just kind of try and you know make smart moves and do what we like and you know that's it well, I mean, you certainly were ahead of the curve with the culinary scene down there, I think, right? I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it, it, Charleston kind of led the way in that sort of, that part of the world. And, but now I hear wonderful things about Savannah. It seems like lately, the last few years have just been great places popping up and people investing into that community. And it's really kind of exploding from what I understand. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, I think that the gray remains the only chef driven restaurant that's just straight up chef driven, yeah, you know, okay. in Savannah, I think that I wish there were more. Yeah. Um, frankly, I think that Savannah's food scene is 
so that is having its moment. There's no doubt about it. Um, you know, and like the tourism numbers are way up and, you know, transplanted people moving here. Like, I think that, you know, you see a lot of that going on. I do, you know, I, I do want more very serious restaurant owners, um, to come to town, you know, and like keep plugging away at this food scene. Um, I think that, you know, that would benefit everybody. I think that the, the, the opportunity I saw in Savannah was like in a way self-serving, right? There were restaurants that Carol and I would go to and, you know, they would do, you would go for one dish, right? You were like, oh, I love that, you know, whatever, steak au poivre at Circa, you know, or I love that crispy scored flounder at the pink house, you know, but there was no place that really for me, and I say this, you know, uh, I, you know, obviously good friends with a lot of the people who own restaurants in town, but there was no place for me that had put the whole thing together, like the food, the service, you know, the, the, the making it about Savannians and not about tourism because tourism is sort of the, the thing that everybody goes for here because it's like, you know, there's money in it. Yeah. And you know, at the gray, my approach was, I want to build something for Savannians. I want to build something for people like me who live here yep. and who want access to, you know, big city type experience, you know, like in New York, you know, you know, there's so many restaurants in New York city that kind of knock your socks off, um, or Paris or London or LA, like these places that I had lived. And so that's what I saw as the opportunity here. I saw the opportunity to build something that was a beautiful room that took steps of service and service so seriously that they became seamless to the guests. Um, that obviously, you know, with a business partner who, you know, is able to make food that is world-class, um, and Mishama right now, like I honestly would put her food up against anybody anywhere. Like it's that good. Um, and it's not hype and it's not bullshit. Like she's that good a cook. Um, and so bringing all those things together under one roof was the thing that was really intriguing to me and to her. Um, let me ask you this when you, uh, so you decided to start this place and began the planning process. And, um, you, you said you, I don't think you, you know, you didn't have a name at the time. Um, did you, did you have a good, clear sense of what the concept was going to be or did it evolve much over time? No, I knew exactly what I wanted. I knew what, I knew what, I knew what the, I knew what I wanted the, guest experience to be right so like that was easy right i wanted a place that was you know fine dining but casual fine dining right yeah. i didn't want you you always want to cross you always want to ride that line between giving people you know a really exceptional and special night out in a place that they feel like they can come to all the time like it's familiar and it's like almost like homey yep and so i knew that i wanted that to be the experience um from a food point of view, I wanted the food to be whatever my business partner really wanted to cook, right? So Mishama and Prune, where, where Mishama comes from, she's like classically French trained. And Prune is sort of an Italian Mediterranean restaurant. And that's really where she cut her teeth, right? Like she, she worked at a lot of places in New York City and she trained in France. But that was really her most formative cooking experience was with Gabrielle and um, Prune. And so... 
you know, I grew up in an Italian household. So Misham and I, like, because of her sort of experiences with Gabrielle, we had a very, very sort of common language around the things we like to eat. But Shama wanted to cook Southern food, right? That's, you know, that's where her mom is from. Her mom's from down this way, her mom's family. And she wanted to return to her roots of the South. And I was a little skeptical of that as a food experience, right? Because like, you know, to me, Southern food was Paula Deen. Mm. And, you know, just, I just thought of it as like butter and fat and bad for you (laughs) and not, you know, like mac and cheese, which there's a place for, right? And, sure. and shrimp and grits, right? And, yeah. you know, all those things are delicious. But what Mashama thought Southern food was is not like anything I had ever considered Southern food. And then we started to like, you know, then you start to figure out where you are, right? And you start to get this sense of place. And so Savannah, like Charleston, like New Orleans, it's a port city, right? So we started to define, we actually coined I think the phrase from Shama's food, port city, Southern, right? Because what you get in a port city is everything, right? You get all these influences from the Caribbean. You get all these South American influences. You get all these Western European influences, you know, obviously against their will, you know, Africans were brought here, you know, 400 years ago and they brought with them, you know, things like okra, you know, and they brought all these flavors and all these spices, you know, and you got the spice trade because they came into ports. So when you think about Southern food, it's really this, you know, this big sort of pot of all these different things that are really delicious, right? So you get access to all these different spices and Southern food and especially low country like Geechee Gullah, you know, where we are in this part of the world is like, it's so influenced from all over that Mishama almost has like free reign to do whatever she feels like in a way. You know, because it all did get cooked here. Um, and, you know, it all did influence this entire region. And so, you know, Chicken Country Captain can be on the menu, which is like this classic southern sauce that, you know, is totally spice trade driven right next to like a Moroccan spiced lamb, smoked lamb, which is on the menu as well. You know, right next to a whole roasted fish that just uses local citrus and local herbs. Um, so, I mean, I think that it's, there's almost like no better place to sort of cook the things you want to eat than the South, you know, Absolutely. And that, that, that turned out to be the experience that, you know, we delivered to our guests. Um, and I saw it, um, but Mishama's cooking was, you know, when Mishama and I met, like something magical happened and, you know, it, it has to do with our personalities and it has to do with her food and it has to do with my attention to detail and our obsessions with getting things right. And so that experience sort of came organically out of the two people that we are. Um, tell me about, did, did not having restaurant experience, I, I'm sure there was a learning curve and so forth, but, but did it benefit you in some ways by coming at yeah. it? creatively yeah. and, and I know that one of the things you said I think it was it may be on your website I, I don't know I wrote this down but you, you said that you know the, the first people we're in service to is each other and if we yeah. take care of each other you know humanity and dignity um, it, you know with humanity and dignity at every level then the guests will naturally experience that and I thought that was really interesting and I, I'd love to hear more about that and then about 
what benefits you may have derived from from not having any preconceived notions of what it was like to own and, and run a restaurant yeah i mean i think that being naive is a highly underrated trait yeah you know Agreed. like so thinking that you can it's like how hard can a restaurant be you know it's like had i been in the restaurant business i would have never undertaken the gray right because it's a beast you know it's a beast of a building like living in this historic footprint and preserving it like if i knew today what i didn't know then i don't think i would have done it i think i would have said it was too big an undertaking and there's no way to be successful at it um so that benefit was you know immediate right just having the sort of the the lack of experience that allowed me to say hey we can do this you know how hard could it be yep um well, well, the, the, you know, the funny thing about that, though, is is that a lot of people do that, and that that begin that can also be the reason they they have issues is because they look at it and they're in there and it looks kind of like this sexy thing, and you know they're a good cook and they go, how how hard can it be? But it is it is freaking hard. I mean, it's it's really it's, hard. So you kind of have to mix that with some sense of you know drive and determination and and uh, business savvy and a lot of other qualities that I'm sure you have yeah. that that enable you to continue once you start to figure out like, this is, this is, this is pretty damn hard. This is a grind. as you said. Yeah. I mean, I think that everybody, you know, when I was doing this, like people couldn't wait to tell me how hard the restaurant business is. Right. Everybody loves to say that they're like, God, the restaurant business, that's really hard. I'm like, the restaurant business is not hard, right? It's like sell the food for less than you pay for it. You know, it's like the business model is simple, Right. But it's a production. And so with my background in sort of media and entertainment, mm. it's like the, the production side of this business made perfect sense to me. Um, and I think that that was hugely beneficial to us being successful at it as me having this experience of kind of like, you know, knowing what a show is and how to produce it and how to make it, you know, happen. And so, um, so like all of that, you know, was fine. Um, and I think that, you know, the couple of first couple of years of learning curve of being in the restaurant was hard. Um, but what I learned, what people mean when they say the restaurant business is hard is it's relentless, right? So like you wake up in the morning and I, I kind of describe it as the baby that's always hungry, right? You always have to feed it, right? It doesn't matter. It's like you put on a great service last night. Great. You know what happens tomorrow morning? You got to start getting ready for another great service, right? And no one gives a shit. No guest cares that you delivered 200 great plates of food the night before, right? They only care about the 200 plates of food that you're delivering that day, you know, and theirs in particular. And that's the relentless part of it, right? So if you come to this business, and I would say this almost about any business, without a real commitment to working your ass off and paying attention to every detail, you will not be successful at it, or you will be successful at it at a level that doesn't make sense to Mashama and me. Yeah. Right. We want to be, you know, we, we, we're writing this book that comes out next year and there's like a story in it that Mashama talks about where like we were maybe a year into it and she and I sat down with one other person and we had this really rough service and it was the next day. And I was like, can I ask everybody a question? I'm like, does everybody want to be great at this? Because if you don't want to be great at it, then I don't know what we're doing here, you know? And Misham and I looked at each other and we had to answer that question. It's like, do we want to excel? Do we want to commit ourselves to being as great as we possibly can every single day? And we looked at each other 
And we went, yeah, we want to be great at this. And that was kind of a very turn. It was a, you know, it was a seminal moment in our relationship and for the gray to say, okay, you know, mediocrity or getting it right 95% of the time is not good enough, you know, and we have to be committed to, you know, perfection is unattainable, but striving for perfection is what you're after. And that's what we're after. And committing to that as people, I think, is why, um, you know, we're, we do a little better each day, you know? Well, that's, you know, that's really interesting. I actually interviewed uh, Brandon Sharp up at Hawthorne and Wood a couple of weeks ago, and he said that he was very similar philosophy, which is, um, I think his exact line was, we, let's see, we, we strive for perfection, but accept excellence. Uh, I mean, I think that's, you know, if you're striving for that, you're going to, that you're going to give yourself the best chance of excellence if you're, if you're demanding, you know, to, to strive for perfection. So, okay. I get it that you and Mashama feel that way and it's your business and your partners and you invested this time and this money and this passion, this energy into it. But this is something I'm always curious about. How do you, I mean, how do you find people to be on your team to share that philosophy, to genuinely share that philosophy? Yeah. And I mean, that's the thing you mentioned earlier, right? It's about like taking care of each other before anything happens. Right. So, and you know, we kind of walk the walk, you know, we don't just talk the talk. Right. So, you know, one of the first things we did for our team um, when we opened the gray is we put healthcare plan in for everybody. Right. Because that is us saying to them, we are not going to take, you know, whatever, $75,000 a year in what would be profit. And we're going to invest that into you guys so that you can have the ability to go to the doctor. Right. Yeah, it yeah. seems like so basic. Right. Right. But that's, you know, that's our commitment to them and saying, you know what, we're going to get your back. And, you know, if you need to see a doctor, you know what, guess what? You're going to have health care, you know, and it's just a simple thing. Right. So taking care of each other is, you know, what our culture is completely built around, you know, and I brought that from like my sort of corporate days and my startup days of like, you know, building companies and, you know, how do you, how do you instill culture in people? Right. And so everything at the gray, you know, starts with this this idea of let's take care of each other, but you have to put your money where your mouth is quite literally. Right. And then you have to be there emotionally be there, you know, from a work point of view, be there. Like, and that means that starts with Mishama and me, like anything that is a failing of the gray is a failing of mine and Mishama's. Right. And that is, and and I don't say that, like, I say that with full, fully serious, like we are, you know, all accountability starts here. Um, So you will never hear me say, Oh, my staff got that wrong. You know, I will say we got that wrong and we're going to use this as a moment to better educate our staff on why we got it wrong. Um, And I think that if you share your vision and your point of view of inclusivity and humanity and, you know, why are you in this business? You know, like one of the things I had to tell the staff the first or relay to the staff, get them to understand the first couple of years was this idea that I come from a family of first responders right? That's who my family was. That's in my DNA, right? They were cops and firemen. And the gray is, you know, we're in service to our guests, right? We're not in servitude to our guests, but we're in service to our guests. That means we have to be here for them always. 
So we can't decide one day we're just going to you know, shut down on a Tuesday night because we got a better offer. Or there's a hurricane coming to town. Okay, great. Everybody gets safe. Those folks who you live, those folks who live downtown, um, you know, if we can be here tomorrow and open up the gray for all of our guests who will be without power and food, we're going to be open, folks. And I don't expect anybody to be here and be unsafe, but we are going to be here for our guests. And when you, when I communicated that the first time when we had our first hurricane, everybody was kind of suspicious of me, and they were like. Oh, he just wants to keep the doors open because he wants to make money. It's like, guys, you don't understand the economics of this business. If that's what you think, it would be more lucrative for us not to open the doors. Right. And let's just take our business interruption insurance and not deal with any of the, you know, of, you know, not counting this as a loss. No, what we're doing here is we're being here for Savannah. We're being here for our guests. You know, Carol and I lived through nine 11 and my you know, and we were like sort of um, displaced from our home for 10 days because our neighborhood was right there and it was shut down. And when we got back, when they let us back in, like the best thing I remember is this bar restaurant, South's, which was like an Irish pub, was open for business and they were serving cheeseburgers. And the entire, our entire neighborhood of Tribeca was in there every night together like sort of getting through 9-11 together. Mm. And that was a great lesson for me as it relates to the gray, because I want the gray to be that place that Savannah goes, oh, you know what? Those guys are always there for us. They never let us down. And oh. that's, how, you know, that's how we've tried to operate. I love that, man. That's so inspiring. I love, the, I love that philosophy. Um, and I also love the fact that you invest so much into the team, and, and I'm sure that they see that. And in fact... Um, I read something. You, some guy came in one night. I think it was a year or two ago, or something. And he, he was kind of, he didn't want the first table y'all offered. He didn't want the second table. Then he wanted a dish that was like he didn't want you know, whatever it was. And he wrote some. He wanted the flan and grits without the grits. Yeah, without the grits. It's like that's the whole. That's the dish. And, and uh, but I thought what was really interesting was you wrote a. You saw the review, I guess, and you. Oh, obviously, well, I was in the restaurant that night. Yeah, but you had been there, and you, you know, you got the review, and you wrote this response, kind of saying, like, you know, it was very. Um, I just thought it was very authentic, and it was clear because you all had asked him to leave, but it was clear you had your staff's back, which I, I, yeah. I think is just that's something that is so meaningful and important to folks to know that, you know, the person they're working for has their back no matter what. And like you said, that you're not blaming anything on the staff. You're all, you're taking truly taking accountability, but that's, that's gotta be a huge part of uh, establishing loyalty and longevity with the staff that, you know, really yeah, wants well, I mean, to be loyalty part of gets loyalty, right? Yeah, it's like, yep. if we don't, if we don't, if we're not there for them, how can, you know, as any business owner, it's like, yeah. if you're not there for your team, how do you ever expect your team to be there for you? And that guy was such a jerk, right? Yeah. I was, I was off that night. It was a Saturday night, I think. And so I was in the diner bar, which is the front space in the gray, like, you know, sort of our cocktail bar and where people wait for their table and what have you. And I was up there having my shift drink, right? Cause I'd worked all day and, um, I was in the diner bar and I'm having a glass of wine. It's like five thirty, six o'clock. And I'm, you know, going to go meet my wife for dinner or whatever. And, one of the managers comes in and he's like, oh, my God, this guy at 22, like, you know, he refused the first table. And we, you know, we, we 
offered him a table in the dining, you know, in on the interior side of the dining room. And he's like, he hated that table. He was with his wife and kids, by the way. He had two mm. young kids with him. No, oh, no. Yeah, no, seriously. And he was, and he, you know, he's a doctor from like Scarsdale, New York. Like, you know, like just like, you know, he just reeked of entitlement, right? And mm. I saw him when he came in. And, you know, that guy, those people, like, there's a group, it's a very small minority of people. And I'm sure every restaurant owner can relate to this who, exercise their power over you by you know in weird ways like oh no that table i'm not taking that table that table's terrible it's like really because you know we kind of think it's like the best table and oh no i would never sit there you know i'm facing the kitchen it's like all right whatever so you know they do this as a way to to to, to exercise power over the staff and so you know what you have to do you just kind of do it right you bear it and you're like oh all right you know let me talk to the maitre d and see if you know we can put you in a different table and we did and we you know walked him to i don't remember i think it was table 40 whatever and um he's like oh this is worse just put me back at the, the first table this is a piece of shit and this is literally how he started talking right so that puts you you're on guard because he's got two young children with him and he's starting to swear at the staff right so the staff is like okay we gotta watch out for this guy and sure enough, they see him and he, um, you know, he looks at the menu. He's like, all right, listen, I want this flaw and grits plate, but I don't want any grits with it. I just want a piece of flaw. And it's like, yeah, you know, and we'll do anything to accommodate a guest, right? Anything that's in reason, anything that doesn't ruin the integrity of a dish, right? So Michelle was like, I- I'm not going to fry the guy a piece of flaw. You know, it's an ounce and a half of flaw, two ounces of flaw. He's going to be disappointed if he just sees a you know a, a two ounce portion of flaw on the plate. I'm not doing it right. This dish is really about the grits and it's about the gravy and it's you know the flaw is almost like the you know the the, the least important component of the dish. <clears throat> and so, the server went back to him and said, "Oh, so, you know, thank you. I checked with the kitchen, and Mishama, you know, just said that you know the dish is really about the grits." So if that doesn't appeal to you, you know, there's plenty of other things we can talk about on the menu. And he starts having like a breakdown, right? And he starts swearing at the staff. And so one of the managers comes into the diner bar and I was in street clothes, right? So I don't usually come and deal with anything in the um, dining room if I'm not in my sort of jacket and, you know, my sort of outfit. And so I'm, you know, consulting with one of the managers in the diner bar. And I'm like, all right, well, you know, we're not making them the flying grits, you know, like he's John, he's starting to literally swear at his server. And I said to Chris, I'm like, what do you want to do? And Chris is like, I think we got to 86 them. And so I'm like, fine, 86 them. And at that point, another one of our managers was already talking to him. And I said, I said to Chris, I'm like, you want me to go do it? And he said, no, no, I got it. You're, you're in your street gear. That's fine. And Colleen, another one of our managers, who's been with us from the very beginning, like she knows the gray inside and out, she's talking to him and he's swearing at her. And Chris goes over and he's just like, you know what, sir, um, I just spoke with the owner and we really think it's better, you know, if you eat dinner somewhere else tonight. And he, he goes, I'm not going anywhere. I'm eating right here. And Chris just said very calmly, he's like, actually, we're not going to serve you any food. So the sooner you can you know, wow. get out of here and find a new place to eat, the better off you and your family are going to be. And so sure enough, the next day he, then he left and, you know, he kind of stormed out of here and he wrote this, you know, really inaccurate review about how horrible our team was. And I was just like, you know, excuse my French, but I'm like, fuck this guy. I'm not letting him get away with this. Um, And I tried to like respond and I know I couldn't figure out Google because I respond to every review. So I did it on Facebook and sort of directed him to Facebook. I didn't divulge his identity, which was up there. 
Um, but I just sort of did my response to him on Facebook. Um, it sort of as a way to say, like, you know what? We, you know, <laughs> we have rights too. Like, you just can't be an asshole to us. Like, yes. We'll deal with challenges and we'll deal with difficult guests, right? You know, everybody's got like, you know, an uncle who's a pain in the neck, right? Or, or you know, a mom or a dad or, you know, who just like, you know, likes things the way they like them. I love trying to please those people. You know, I love trying to please the people who are hard to please because when you get them, it's really, really rewarding. Very you know? satisfying. So I love yes, the challenging sure. guests, but I don't, I'm not going to deal with the asshole guest. I'm just, I'm too old for it. I'm not in servitude to anybody. And, and the team knows that. And we've only had that experience maybe five times in five years, four and a half years, whatever it is. But we just like, you know, when you cross the line, you cross the line and you're not welcome here. Well, what I love is, I love the fact that when your manager was talking to you, um, you know, he, you said, what do you think we should do? That That's a little thing. You just kind of went through that. But that's such a big part of being a good leader and being a good manager is is empowering your team yeah, to make 100%. those decisions. What do you think yeah, we should yeah. do versus, well, here's what we're going to do. So that's really cool. And, uh, you know, you mentioned something else, too. I'm, I'm curious about you. Said you, you respond to all reviews that you have i do i do i personally respond to every review we get that's i figure like if people take the time to write it yeah um they deserve the time to be responded to what what um, sites do you get and i've actually fallen, fallen behind like the last month because michelle and i've been on the road so much so i have like a bunch i've actually was sitting here this morning responding to yelp reviews um that's what i've been doing pretty much all day because i have fallen behind a little bit but i'll get caught up by the weekend and everybody will have had a response yeah. so yelp and then uh do you do you do yelp trip advisor all of them. Um, okay. google um and facebook wow i don't respond to our resi reviews um just because there's so many of them and for the most part like on resi like i'll respond to a really really poor review a really poor experience or something, you know, a little out of the ordinary. And I, I don't think that folks really expect a response on Resi, so we just kind of leave that alone. But, you know, by that same token, you know, we got a review this morning when I got here, um, and it was on um, Yelp. And I actually just responded to it a little while ago. And it was, um, he, a guy came in here last night at 9.10, and um, we wouldn't serve him because the kitchen closed at 9.00. And even though we had open menus and he was like 10 minutes late, um, I wasn't here last night and um, they didn't serve him. They said, sorry, the kitchen's closed. And he left this review this morning that was like, you know, basically said, I don't care how popular you think you are. You can accommodate a single guy at 910 when the kitchen's still working. And it was just kind of a bad move management is what he said. And so I read the review this morning and I checked with the managers and what happened. And we just screwed the pooch on that one. We should have sat the guy. We should have fed him. Like, that's our job, you know? And so my response to him is, you know what? You're 100% right. And we really got this wrong. And I'm going, I can't change the experience you had last night, but I'm going to use it as a way to talk to the team and talk to them about what generosity means, what generosity of spirit means, what hospitality means. And the next time, we're in this situation that person will be set and will be fed. Um, and, you know, I thank you for taking the time to tell us, you know, how we failed you. Um, 
and he deserves that. Right. And I also sent him, you know, I said, Hey, if you want to come back here, here's an email address. Like I will personally make sure that your experience is, you know, on point. Um, and I hope he, I hope he responds, but we'll see. Well, I think that's awesome, John. And I think the, um, the fact that's great that you respond to all these because it's such a like it's almost there's no way you can lose right like a good good review and you respond it just shows people it shows people that have done the reviews and people reading the reviews that you're engaged and dialed in and particularly in a situation like that like if somebody reads that review and there's no response or no you just it has a very different impact than when they read it and see not only did you respond but you said yeah man you're right like that's yeah that's something that people yeah, respect. And of course, right underneath that, there's another one-star Yelp review where the guy is like, I paid $15 for less than an ounce of Lafroig scotch. And I'm like, you know what? That's just not true. <laughs> you are not that. You're, what you're saying is not true. It's a two-ounce pour. Every pour is measured, and it's $12. And you know, I'm looking at our beverage book right now, and I just double-checked our POS system to make sure that that was correct. So you paid twelve dollars for two ounces of Lafroig, which is totally reasonable. So again, I'm sorry, but you're lying. You yeah, know? Uh, I love it. I think that's great, man. Um, the uh, and the thing is, when you have somebody that you know, the first guy that was there at nine ten or whatever, I, that guy. I mean, once he sees that, he's going to be a customer for life, kind of thing. You know, like I, I hope. I hope so, but I really because I genuinely feel like we we mishandled that. I remember there was a restaurant in Charleston famous restaurant and my wife and I were going there for the first time and this is before I was in the restaurant business um we had just bought the house yeah yeah I think it was oh better than when we were doing the tour of the south and we were running late right and we were running late we had like a 130 rezo and I think the restaurant closed at two right and so we were running late and we were like it was terrible traffic to get into Charleston I don't know if you've ever done that road in but it's a pain in the ass to get in there right and so we're like, you know, I'm calling the restaurant. I'm like, oh, we really want to eat there, but we may not get there until like 205, 210, because we had a dog with us and we had to stop at the hotel and drop the dog off. And like, and they were like, well, if you get here at two o'clock, we'll happily seat you. And I'm like, well, you, if we get there at 205, you won't? And they're like, no, we, it shuts down at two o'clock. And I'm like, really? They're like, yeah. So we went crazy to make the rezzo. And we got there at like 1.59 and 50 seconds. And they were literally, they hesitated for a second before they even sat us. And I remember that story so well, which is why I'm so sensitive to what happened to mm. this guy last night. Yeah. You know, where it was like, wait, your job is to be hospitable and you're making me feel badly because of traffic. Yeah. And I never want to be that place. And you know what we were last night? We were that place. And that is really disappointing to me, you know, and I take it so personally. Well, you were uh, you were better than that place in the sense that like that restaurant knew y'all were coming. You called, you did everything. This guy just kind of rolled in. But still, I get what you're saying, though. It's it's uh, he had his point about, you know, I'm just one guy. Yeah. Nine, ten, I mean, it's hospitality, me. right? Yeah. We talk about it all the time. Hospitality, generosity of spirit. It's like Mishama and I are generous people by nature. Yeah. You know? That's the only way you can be in this business is if you're generous by nature. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, look, John, I mean, this is, this has been fun and you're, man, I really appreciate the time and your ability yeah, to share it, your story and your philosophies is just, you articulate it so well. So, um, 
just really thank you and, and congrats to you and Mashama on all the success. And I know you all will continue thank with you it. So much. Yeah. yeah, man. Um, in fact, I, I appreciate um, it. This was fun. I love, I mean, I'm just, I love the gray and I love talking about the gray. So oh, that's very clear, man. Good. Anybody that listens yeah. to this will, it, it comes off very nationally and very clearly. You've got a lot of passion for that. And I know Mashama does too. So, uh, well, look, I'll, um, I really want to get down there. I've heard so many great things, so I hope that I can you get let there. me know. Yeah, I will definitely let you know when I'm coming. Um, and folks, just uh, and and by the way, just I mean, thank you for this time and thank you for the chance to serve y'all, man. We're really proud to serve you and and uh, really. Yeah, appreciate no, we appreciate it. We appreciate scheduled flights that we do. Yeah, man. Um, well, listen, folks. Thanks for listening. We'll have more more episodes soon, uh, and hope you enjoyed this and have a good one. Thanks. All right. Well, take care, man. All right. See you. All right. Bye bye.